0: Hello everyone. Gene editing technology has gone mainstream in conference panels across the agriculture industry. But what does it mean on the ground for producers and consumers? I'm Kate Hayden, technology innovation and entrepreneurship reporter for the Des Moines Business Record. In February I met with Carmen Bain, rural sociologist at the Department of Sociology at Iowa State University and Corey Christensen, technical program leader in the seed business platform at Corteva Agriscience. We'll talk you through the building blocks of what gene editing is, how it might affect agricultural producers, and what consumers need to know to feel informed. Thanks for listening. Um, I'd like for the two of you to introduce yourselves. Uh, Tell me a little bit about um, what you do and um, just a a short intro on how you came to study this role. So, um, Carmen, would you like to get started? (laughs)
1: I'm Carmen Bain, and I'm a Rural Sociologist in the Department of Sociology at Iowa State University. And I have done a, worked on a couple of projects related to GMOs and gene editing. So I did work looking at consumer perceptions of GMO labelling and some of the national debates around GMO labelling. And then at the um, more recently... I've been working on public perceptions and understandings related to gene editing in agriculture. So I'm actually part of a USDA funded grant uh, that includes a number of different um, faculty members at Iowa State University and we're, we're looking at what are some of the gaps in public trust around gene editing and how can we address those gaps and how can we think about how we might govern gene editing. So we've been doing interviews with key stakeholders to understand what some of their concerns are around gene editing. We're going to do a public survey. We've been doing some media analysis and so forth. Okay.
2: Thank you, yeah, my name is Corey Christensen. I'm with Corteva Agriscience. And for most of my career, which has been about 20 years, I have been working Um, in roles within the R&D organization, mostly around discovering and developing traits using biotechnology. For the past two years at Corteva, I have been part of our seed business platform, and the role that I have is called the Global Technical Program Leader for Genome Editing and CORN, but we'll focus on the genome editing piece today. And so in that role, uh, I I have accountability for all of our product development programs that use genome editing technology, And I chair a couple of strategy teams that are involved in how we interface um, with the public in terms of trying to influence uh, the development of regulatory policy and public acceptance, as well as just our um, internal strategy.
0: All right. Thank you both for joining us today. Um, I'd like to get started with how do you describe gene editing to a newcomer in this space?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's it's worthwhile to spend a few minutes on that just to lay a really solid foundation. Right. Um, I'll just, just, we'll start from basics, but move quickly. So every plant, every cell, every living cell contains DNA. That DNA is divided up into segments called genes. These genes are the things that control functions in the cell and throughout the organism. And there are tens of thousands of genes in any cell. Um, as you think about um, h- h- historically, so... Um, genome editing is in the context of this history of mankind being able to use plants and animals every in every generation um, a natural variations occur in DNA changes happen Mm -hmm. those are called mutations it's kind of a scary word but a mutation just means one of those letters A G C or T has changed there's some changes in the DNA so these occur um, over time and Uh, Farmers, early farmers for the thousands of years, um, more recently people taking a focused approach on breeding, have used this natural variation to create all of the wonderful variety of plants and animals that we use in agriculture today. Um, For the past 50, well for the past 70 years, since about 1950, um, uh, plant scientists have been able to also use technology to create random mutations this is called mutagenesis. They use chemicals or x-rays to um, make changes in DNA. Mm -hmm. And um, there are thousands of varieties of plants that have been produced using this technology that we eat and consume every day. There are a list of of literally hundreds of species that have been um, developed in this manner. And so with all that as context, um, the next piece that's important to understand is that since For the last couple of decades, we've had tremendous abilities to peer into the DNA sequence of plants. It used to cost tens of millions of dollars and take multiple years to sequence the genome of of a living organism. Um, And now we can sequence genomes for thousands of dollars in a matter of weeks. And so the amount of information we have about plant varieties, animal varieties, is growing exponentially every year we have a tremendous amount of knowledge about the dna sequence, about the genes and if we w- and now we know and we can we can look in, we can compare varieties, we can say here's what the changes that were made that allowed these particular beneficial characteristics to occur. What genome editing, finally coming to the point, what genome editing allows us to do now is use that information to go into a genome and make very specific changes based on this knowledge that we have and we can say this gene, if we turn it off, if we turn it on, if we change it in some way, we can produce a desired characteristic. So no longer do we have to rely on random mutagenesis or chance to produce (laughs) the changes that would be beneficial, we can go in and do that in a very specific way. And a really nice analogy for how genome editing works is word processor. So picture the genome as an encyclopedia of information, Mm -hmm. and now you can go in and you could delete a word you could change the spelling of a word, or you could add a word, in order to produce the story and the characteristics that you wanted in a plant. So, sorry for the really <laughs> long answer, but I thought it was it was worthwhile to lay a little bit of a foundation. Uh,
0: absolutely. Yeah. So, when we when we think about how big these edits would be in the context of, um, you know, a, a plant or a product, I mean, how um, how defined does an edit have to be? Is this our, are you making one tweak in a, in a long line of, of the genome, or are you, yeah. are you I, I guess, what does that scale look like when you look at a project?
2: Yeah, the scale can, the scale can, is, is large, the range of variation, the range of things that you could do, but you could have beneficial changes that produce a desired characteristic by changing just a single letter from one letter to another. And I think most, most of your audience will be familiar with A's and C's and G's and T's that are the letter code that make up DNA. And so simply changing one of those, an A to a T or a G to a c or or something, could be sufficient to produce a desired characteristic. In some cases, you might want to um, delete an entire gene. Mm-hmm. In other cases, you may want to change the sequence of a gene from one from one type to another. Mm-hmm. So just, there's there's a wide variety of 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 um, changes that could be made. And you know one of the things that as we think about these is you know it's increasingly it, it depends entirely on, the amount of knowledge we have about what what changes would be beneficial
1: sure sure yeah if I could just add something so you know my work is is focused on engaging with different stakeholders to understand what some of their concerns are, how are they perceiving the changes, how are they thinking about them and so forth and Corey that I that was a really lovely explanation and I think when you talk to scientists, they give you a a much rounder understanding, a deeper, broader understanding of what gene editing is. I think one of the concerns that's coming up among some folks that I talk to is that in the media, we tend to oversimplify what gene editing is. And so uh, people can walk away thinking it's this one technique and it's, Really simple and precise because we hear this language all the time of, um, you know, the scissors go in and it's right. precise and it's accurate and and you know and there's very little risk and so forth and and what Corey's conveying is that it's a range of technologies and it can you know range from something fairly straightforward um, to something quite complex. And I think one of the challenges moving forward is how we engage in some of those conversations because at the moment I think proponents of gene editing are focused on, you know, this is a technology that's really precise and, and, and I think they're and simple and just like plant breeding and I think they're, part of the motivation for that is to allay the public's potential concerns about some of the risks And I think moving forward, you know, how do we engage in some conversations where we can also talk about some of the more complicated um, aspects of gene editing and where there might be greater risks. Mm -hmm. That's, I think, and I think that's one of the the issues that's coming back at me is, is a concern that we're oversimplifying it and how can we... Talk about the, the range of technologies that gene editing embody Sure, sure. So when
0: we talk about those range of technologies, um, what what in particular is the technology that we're using to, to go into these genomes and, and you know either rearrange or um, cut some aspects out, and how long has it been a um, how long has it been in the field or in research?
2: So when we talk about genome editing, we're actually we're talking about a whole suite of different tools, and there's been an evolution of those over the past couple mm-hmm. of decades. And there are a lot of really complex-sounding names that are out there like meganucleases and talons and CRISPRs. So a lot of them are fun mm-hmm. to say, but um, the one that is gaining the most prominence and the one that's most widely used and, and the one that's actually getting into sort of the popular culture, and you see it on the front page of Newsweek and mm-hmm. and magazines and so forth, is, is CRISPR, and that right. is a an acronym, and that's an acronym that describes how the um, sequences of genetic information were arranged mm-hmm. when they were discovered in a bacterial species, and the, it stands for Clustered Regularly Interspersed Palindromic Repeats, which is why we don't say that very often because <laughs> it's a mouthful, but CRISPR, and so that one has been around, that one has been um, understood and, and used in part for a couple of decades, but just more recently, um, starting in around 2012, is when um, some major universities, uh, UC Berkeley, Vilnius, Harvard, MIT, had discoveries in this space that, that found that that particular tool was going to be useful for genome editing, and so since that time, it has gained a lot of attention.
0: Mm-hmm. And is it, is it still, you said it's the most prominent technology, is it the most, widely used technology among people studying this?
2: It is the most widely used. There's other okay. ones that are, that that there's there's startup companies that have adopted earlier versions of this, and they they have particular applications that are useful. They all do a very similar thing, which is if you're going to change the DNA sequence, you have to know the address, and you have to be able to target your editing tools to that location in the genome. And so they all have some way of recognizing DNA sequence, getting some editing machinery to the right place in the genome, and then making a change, which is often, as you mentioned, by cutting, or in some cases, some other, some other methods mm-hmm. of, of changing um, the sequence. Uh, but yeah, they, they, they all basically work on the same principle, but CRISPR is the most efficient, widely used, taken up by both academia and industry around the world.
0: Sure, sure. So I, I'd like to set some context here um, in terms of the agricultural industry. Um, as far as research coming out or, or some of the agricultural challenges um, that people believe gene editing might be a viable tool for, what do some of those challenges look like?
2: Would you like me to go first? you want to go first, Carmen? Yeah, so there really are in it, and I'll go back to to an earlier comment, it really depends on your understanding of the biology. So if you're going to, first, before you can make any, any change, you need to understand the biology. And there, there are a couple of, of parts to that. One is the s- sequencing that I talked about mm. earlier. You need, to, you need to know the sequence of the um, genome that you're interested in editing. But another part of that is what you need to understand what the genes are and what they do. And so for many decades, um, agricultural industry and academia and researchers have been studying various pathways that, that control functions in plants. Many of those pathways of interest have to do with um, disease tolerance, um, oil profiles, protein production, um, things that keep um, other aspects of um, stress response. So you start to think about what are the challenges that a, that a producer is going to face in the field, growing plants and trying to have you know, high productivity, um, Plants growing in the field that are that are able to withstand the stresses, the nutrient deficiencies that may exist. There is quite a bit of information already available that that you could go in and start to make some changes in plants that would allow you to um, increase the productivity of plants growing in a in a given situation. There's a whole other set of um, characteristics that have to do with things that would be more consumer-oriented, like um, healthy oils, um, higher higher protein content, improved protein content. Reducing anti-nutritional components or allergens. So these are a lot of a lot of other um, types of applications um, with genome editing technology that are the kinds of things we haven't seen as much of in the earlier um, um, biotechnology applications. Mm-hmm. So there's some new new opportunities to create things that are really beneficial for both consumers and producers.
0: Okay, so so beyond um, beyond the producer's ability to grow or um, the nutritional makeup of you know the food item or the production item. What, what are some of those other um, applications that people may not be aware of right now?
2: So one of the first products that is, there's one product that's in the market in the US currently, it's a, it's a high oleic soybean oil. So it's a soybean, okay. soybean oil that's made to look like olive oil. This is done via genome editing and Oil, olive oil is, is, um, has a healthier profile and it also has an, an, uh, improved processing characteristics, longer fry life and things like that. So mm. that is an example, a, a specific example of what you're talking about. Other ones include other ones that aren't on the market yet, but things that people are thinking about are reducing allergens in peanuts a complex problem but it is something that would be tractable via genome editing if you could identify what those allergens are and you know what they are if you 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 could make you could eliminate or reduce those from peanuts so reducing peanut allergies Um, there are uh, for um, like I said oil oil characteristics for feed applications so so a lot of our um, commodity especially a lot of commodity that we grow here in Iowa goes to feed applications and so improving the nutritional aspects of that feed that allow the chickens and hogs that are eating it to have higher productivity, and reducing anti-nutritional compounds is another, another really specific example of the kinds of things sure. that are are being contemplated. Okay, yeah.
1: okay. And what kinds of traits get developed, especially in the early stages of commercializing different products that have been gene editing, is viewed as really important for consumer acceptance. So one of the criticisms around GMOs was that the kinds of products that were produced, largely glyphosate-resistant soybean and corn, the benefits largely accrued to the big biotech and seed companies or the large Farmers, and that very that there really were no benefits to consumers. You could argue that it reduced their cost, but it wasn't a it wasn't a benefit that was immediately perceivable by consumers. And so the the hope here is that some of the earliest products that come out um, will be products with traits that are recognisably. Beneficial to different consumers. Now, whether that happens or not is a is a different question, because of course the biggest companies who are involved in in, in developing some of these products, um, their most of their work is targeted to- towards commodity crops for farmers, such mm-hmm. as Cortiva and so forth. So work being done on soybeans and corn and so forth. But as Corey said, there's a number of different startups. There's also, you know, non-profit institutions who are doing work on products that could have a perceivable benefit for consumers, but also benefits for smallholder farmers in developing countries. If you could develop drought-resistant um, or... Um, you know, uh, rice or, you know, rice that's more resistant to increasing salinization. So there's, and you could, and I think Corteva is also doing work on orphan crops. Um, you know, how can we think of uh, traits that would benefit orphan crops for smallholders in developing countries? So what I'm getting at is that if you want the public to accept this, they want to feel like, this technology is being used in a way that has some direct benefit to them. Now, when I say that, that doesn't also mean that everyone's going to agree because what I might perceive as a beneficial trait, Mm -hmm. one we've probably heard of is the non-browning mushroom. Some people might look at that and think, that's a great trait. I would love to have mushrooms that don't go brown after a week. Other people would look at that and think, no actually i find that really problematic because it seems unnatural and i want to be able to see my mushrooms go brown um so there can be some tensions between um you know people thinking this is a good way to reduce food waste and other people perceiving that as completely unnatural another um Another areas in terms of animal welfare, you could develop traits that could benefit uh, animals. So the the example that we can hear and read a lot about is the uh, where they've been able to um, edit the genome of of uh, cattle uh, so that they don't so that when uh, so the they're not producing horns they're called depolled cattle is that right, right yeah. um, and so you know that means that farmers don't have to go and remove the horns of the cattle when they're older mm-hmm. um, which is I think it's be- you know, typically a pain a painful process. So this is considered, um, you know, beneficial in terms of animal welfare. So there can be environmental benefits, mm-hmm. consumer benefits, animal welfare benefits, but also benefits for smallholder farmers in developing countries. Sure,
0: from a um, from a consumer standpoint, with with your research, how uh, how long? Has, has it been in discussions with consumer focus groups or um, it, how, how familiar are they with this technology coming
1: out? We're about to do a survey and one of the challenges as we think about crafting this survey is recognising that very few people know what it is. Mm. So there is there is growing understanding because as Corey said, there's increased media attention. We're seeing CRISPR on the front cover of, of or gene editing on National Geographic, Newsweek and so forth. So there is mm-hmm. some growing understanding but it's still very small and some, our expectation is that it will remain fairly low until you have some specific products on the market. Um, and that's when you'll you'll start to see greater awareness. So we look at consumers but also other, um, other groups in society, many groups who, who represent consumers or groups who might represent the environment or um, the organic industry. And when you look at what we would what we can think of as different stakeholder groups, consumer, environmental, um, agricultural groups, then there's more awareness among those those folks. Mm-hmm. And they can play an important role in educating the public and informing the public about gene editing. Sure.
2: I'd like to pick up a piece of the of the thread that we were discussing here. And I think um really important that probably most of the public's exposure to genome editing will first come through these human health applications. Mm-hmm. Um, we, as Corteva, and I think you rightly pointed out, Carmen, that our primary customers are producers, and so we deal with a lot of commodity crops, corn, soybean, cotton, canola, sunflower, and, we're, and, and the people that are our customers are, are growers. Um, but uh, we have interacted a lot. We've tried to reach out, interact, let people know that this technology is coming, create public forums, create venues. We, have a, we sponsored a, a conference called CRISPRCon, It's like Comic-Con, but CRISPR-Con, where a variety, big cross-section of of society could come together, have a conversation. One of the things that is really important for people, in addition to having, sort of being able to to recognize the benefit of traits that that could benefit consumers, not just producers or big ag companies, as you pointed out, is knowing that um, others will be able to participate in the technology. It's not gonna be something that's just closely held. And so Corteva was a company that um, really early had secured the freedom to operate, intellectual property rights to some of these discoveries that I mentioned with those universities. But one thing that we've done is we've made sure that anybody is able to access that technology. So we were able to sub-license that to other companies and we license that to competitors, small companies, big companies, academics, anybody. So everybody will be able to access this technology. And so while we may not be able to reach all of society or all of these applications, we're doing what we can to make sure that it is broadly available. The technology is broadly available in society to address these the, the consumer-oriented applications, fruits, vegetables, all kinds of crops.
1: So what Corey is talking about is such an important issue. One of the fundamental criticisms of GMOs was about uh, who controlled the technology, that there were just a tiny handful of companies who were you know, had the resources to control uh, the technology and then were able to use it purely for their benefit is, is sort of the public perception. And so in this case, gene editing, the, langu- the sort of uh, term that gets used is gene editing allows for the democratization of this technology. As Corey said, It f- facilit- the technology itself facilitates greater access by different stakeholders because it's, you know, relatively easier and cheaper and so forth. But you've also had to have the leadership of companies like Corteva who have, have gone down this path of open licensing. So there are many folks who think this is going to be really important for um, facilitating public trust and public acceptance, because it is going to allow not just the big companies, but the small startups, and again, universities, non-profits, organizations working with poor farmers in developing countries, because they're going to have the access to that technology, which will allow them to develop traits Including for products that have you know, that aren't profitable in the market but um but they are still able to do it because they don't have to confront these this burden of costly patents and licensing agreements.
0: Sure. You've talked a little bit about the comparison of of, of GMO criticism um to the the emerging, you know, understanding of genome editing. What what went wrong in terms of how GMOs were understood and what needs, I I guess, what went wrong and and what should people take away from the introduction of that to the market? Mm
1: -hmm. So one of the things I think is really interesting and what I'm really enjoying about my work is how reflective so many proponents of gene editing are being in terms of thinking about what did we do wrong around GMOs and how can we do things differently? So Corey pointed to a really nice example, which was the example of CRISPR So one of the things that proponents of gene editing are doing are trying to organize more public forums where There can be a dialogue around these issues, and so I think there's been about three CRISPR cons: one in the Midwest, one in the Netherlands, maybe four, a couple of others. Boston, Berkeley, yeah, yeah, a couple more. So that's you know that's one example. So so part of the issue was the sense that that you know um, industry proponents of GMOs didn't really listen. To concerns that people had around the technology. There was very much the attitude around GMOs, which was simply, this is safe, um, there's nothing wrong with it, and if uh, if if you don't like it, you or if the people who don't like GMOs are purely being unscientific, they just don't get the risks. And there was this, this um, approach, it's called the information deficit model, but the approach was that Okay, the problem here is that people just simply don't understand the science. They simply don't have all the facts. And if we can just get out and we tell them what the facts are, that here's the risks and here's the benefits, then they'll accept it. The problem is the information deficit model doesn't work for a couple of reasons. One is typically the, you know, that people can have non-scientific concerns around a technology, which the emphasis. Infos- information deficit model doesn't address. Um, and it's also that people's fundamental con- concerns is often not about the technology but with or whether they trust the technology but actually whether they trust the organisations and the institutions who are um, developing the technology and advocating and regulating on its behalf. So in our mind, it's really about trust in the organisations, not trust in the technology. So what we see today is, uh, you know, much more self-reflection about, you know, how can we, you know, how can we engage with the public, how can we have more of a dialogue so it's not this, you're stupid, let me tell you the facts, but more recognition now that we, you know, industry has to listen, they have to think about what the different concerns are. Sometimes these are value concerns you know sometimes these are social concerns or or you know concerns about regulation nothing to do with the science but how can we have that kind of discussion with people um and i and to me that's been i'm not saying that will work but it's been a really important step forward sure uh,
0: I want to ask you, from Corteva's perspective, y- you've been involved with putting together crispr con What what is the discussion um, in your company over kind of you know uh, heading off that um, that information deficit model? How how do you get around that, and how how did you? Um, put together events like CRISPR-CON and how are you addressing um, future communication around this work?
2: Yeah, thanks for that. That's a great question. And I just want to wholeheartedly endorse the deficiencies of the information deficit model, right? I mean, we, we understand that this doesn't work. Um, and so we have a lot of enlightened people at, at, at Corteva that work in what we call our external affairs group that are, that are thinking about this, that are helping our organization, the science and the business parts of our organization really understand um a way to think differently and act differently and and Corteva's trying to be a different type of company one illustration of that is one of our one of our brand pillars is is radical openness so what does that mean for us and it it really is addressing that that point that that Carmen raised which was really appropriate that it's not about we're going to explain the technology and then you'll believe it or just trust us it's we're going we are, we have committed to be transparent about what we're doing we recognize that people have an interest in knowing how their food is made and for different reasons like you mentioned and so we've committed to be transparent about what technologies we use how we use them and which products were made using which technologies we're still working through how we're going to to make that available public you know public that information available publicly but that is a commitment we've made and we're working towards uh, doing that mm-hmm. in a broad way so I it just completely endorse um, what Carmen said about the need to do that to think differently and to to be really engaged with society as we bring these technologies forward.
0: Sure. So can you tell me a little bit more about crispr con and, and how Corteva was involved with that?
2: Yeah, so the, it predates me a little bit, but okay. um, I've been involved for two years. We have um, a couple of individuals that have been pretty involved and that, that are part of the organizing committees. Our chief technology o- officer, Neil Gutterson, um, one of the individuals from our external affair groups, Doyle Carr, have been heavily Engaged in just part of the recognizing the needs for that, and then um, Corteva's been a sponsor of that event from the beginning. So the first one was at Berkeley mm-hmm. back in 2016, I believe. Maybe it was 2017. So
0: and and who does this attract? Who who is coming to this event, and and
1: what are the conversations that are being had? Yeah. So I was fortunate enough to attend the one in the Netherlands last summer, and then. One in Madison, Wisconsin, last summer as well, and so the one in Madison. I think there were a couple of hundred people. I think it was largely attracting, ac- so it's a a narrow public that they're <laughs> attracting at the moment. But uh-huh. but that's still important because these are influence makers. But at this stage, you know, the, it was a, a, attracting academics. Uh, industry folks and some policy makers. Interestingly, I think about half of the participants at the Midwest meeting were high school teachers and even maybe, I think it was mostly high school teachers, but there'd been a concerted effort to try and attract teachers and some of whom brought their students. And the panels, there were really different, make. there were some keynote um, speakers, but there were different kinds of, Panels where people would engage around, talk about regulatory issues, talk about public trust issues, there might be a panel focused on farmer perspectives, consumer perspectives, and what was really interesting about the Midwest meeting too was they had... Um, some folks who who discussed indigenous perspectives on this, which was the first time that I'd seen it might have happened um, previously, but really trying to give a spectrum of where might different folks, um, whether you, if you're Native American or you're an organic producer, or, um, uh, and actually, it um, you know, talk about this, and actually Corey's point reminded me, crispr doesn't just focus on agriculture. It also focuses on the health mm-hmm. aspects as well. And so that was really... Um, that's really useful too. So you also, you know, gained an understanding of how gene editing is, is helping uh, or some of the potential around it in terms of health issues.
2: And importantly, not just people that are proponents or positively disposed, disposed towards no. it, but also critics or... People who might be, and the one I went to in Boston had a Catholic priest, so representing sort of religious or ethical questions. So really, trying to intentionally trying to get a, a pretty broad cross section. Although, although people who are more, influ, um, you know, influence influencers mm-hmm. in the in society, but yeah,
1: exactly. And and the health was really interesting because they, um, and maybe Corey can explain the science of this. But one of the big health breakthroughs is with sickle cell anemia. Yeah. And they had folks on the panel who suffered from sickle cell and of course this is I think one of the big breakthroughs that gene editing has been able to help with. My understanding is you're seeing some people now. Is that right? Am I yeah. you're, I'm probably going outside it's, outside of the field yeah. of agriculture. Yeah, so yeah
2: me too. If, getting a little yeah. bit getting a little bit wide, but yes, I think in the in the field of human health there are a number of diseases mm-hmm. that are really Really tractable for for genome editing applications, especially when you can take cells out of the body like a blood uh, mm-hmm. like like bone marrow, make an edit, put it back in, and have it now producing non sickle cell um, blood cells it's, okay so yeah.
0: so to be clear in this particular application we're talking about removing cells from the body,
2: editing the putting them back in okay,
0: so this is not yep. a
1: this is not an instance of editing a person
2: nope.
0: right oh, gotcha no.
1: no and what there's, i can't remember, but there's actually a there was a great uh, TV program on this as well because what's also really powerful around in terms of the sickle cell um, case is that this is a disease that largely affects African Americans and people of color, mm. and so this is and this is a population that historically has been marginalized and who often feel that. Their health concerns have not been adequately addressed. So it's a powerful story in a number of ways, both in terms of the science, but also in terms of, um, you know, reaching a a marginalised population and and making a a huge difference in terms of their lives. Sure,
0: absolutely. Um, I I, want to ask uh, from the perspective of agricultural producers and commercial stakeholders... Uh, is there a clear understanding of gene editing and the limits of the technology? where um, Where are we in terms of like a practical expectations of what this can and can't do for agriculture or business?
2: It's very early days for the technology, so just to just to be clear on that. So I mm-hmm. think we're we're understanding um, what the potential of it is, and the potential will largely be, determined by the degree to which we understand the biology right so you you can't go in and make a change unless you know what what change needs to be made in order pr- to produce the desired outcome so i think um my anticipation is that provided we can successfully navigate um the next couple of years while we're, we're still understanding it and the public is getting comfortable with it and and all of the stakeholders in the value chain are are um recognizing and appreciating the value of it and wanting the technology, the regulations get in place that allow it, that the potential will just grow and grow because our, bio, our knowledge of biology will continue to grow.
1: Mm-hmm. So
2: it is, it is the tool, it'll be a preferred tool or the preferred tool to um, produce bio, desirable biological outcomes if you have the knowledge, right? So, we, so our knowledge is increasing and, gen- and if we didn't have a tool like genome editing, That knowledge is just going to increase about, you find a mutation that causes sickle cell anemia, you can do nothing about it, right? You find a a disease in plants, um, but you don't have the gene in the plant that you need it to to cure that disease, there's nothing you can do about it. But if you have genome editing, Mm -hmm. now you can do something about it. And so our knowledge is going to continue to increase, the applications will continue to increase. But as of today, yeah, if you look at the landscape, and you asked about producers, and I think producers are um, very accepting of the technology. They're interested in innovation. Mm-hmm. Um, they have a number of problems that they're trying to deal with in getting high productivity from their farms and acres, and and these, and they recognize the value of these kinds of tools to deliver that. Mm-hmm. Um, the others in the value chain, so people that um, sell the produce or um, you know, grain trade and so forth want to make sure that we're able to that they're able to market and sell the things that were being developed, and so that's probably where the most open question is still. Okay. The regulatory environment, which we haven't talked much about, is mm-hmm. still um, developing worldwide, mm-hmm. largely worldwide. Um, countries, especially those that are involved in cultivating uh, crops or net exporters of, of, of crops are adopting policies that are scientific, they are appropriate, what we would consider appropriate, levels of regulation. They regulate these products of genome editing in the same way they regulate products of mutagenesis or products of breeding. And and we feel like that's an appropriate level of regulation. Uh, So that's largely developing, but there are a couple of places around the world where the policies have not been um, developed yet. China is one. Some other countries in Asia um, Mm -hmm. just developing some. And and, and in Europe, uh, notably, um, their their current position based on their um, legal framework is that products of genome editing will be GMOs. That creates a hurdle for the technology if you're going to export anything to Europe or grow anything in Europe that is probably too high for many of these applications. Okay. Yeah.
0: Mm -hmm. So, um, but if, if there's a, with gene editing, and the understanding that our our knowledge is, you know, our research and our ability to understand this technology is only going to increase, that still means that at this time there's kind of a limit to our understanding. How um, commercially, how do you discuss moving forward with a technology like CRISPR, or any of the other suite of tools that you have, um, if there's still concern that the implications of it might not be understood f- from an agricultural standpoint.
2: Yeah. So when I talk about the it being driven by the, the degree to which we understand something, it's do we know, for mm-hmm. example, a gene that could produce an effect? So let's take an example. Um, in many cases, we have we're growing corn in North America, we're growing corn in Iowa. There's a disease, northern leaf blight, that impacts crops. We know that we have genes in corn plants in, that are growing in Latin America that are resistant to northern leaf blight, and we know what gene is involved in that. Mm-hmm. And we know that that gene exists in the, the plants we're growing in Iowa as well, but it's not the same sequence. It doesn't have exactly the right code, and so we know, that it, we know now that we've learned this, that if we change the code of the gene, the plants growing in Iowa, they'll, be, they'll have resistance to northern leaf blight. We just need that kind of knowledge to be able to do that when i say that that we have the knowledge or that there's limitations um it's why i wanted to when you when we first started this conversation lay a little bit of that groundwork and put genome editing in the context of we have the idea that that a genome is something that's static and never changing these genomes are changing all the time if you looked at a plant and its progeny or siblings there's going to be many many changes in the dna every generation new changes come up this is what is the source of all the variation that you see in the world. And so um, we, when we think about when we're doing genome editing, are we doing anything that's um, really far out of the um, range of things that could naturally occur? And in, and for the most part, no, we're not. And so we don't, so it's not so much that we don't know what the effects of it are. Mm-hmm. Um, we do a lot of testing anytime we make a product to test it, make, multiple generations. We grow it in thousands of locations to make sure that um, the performance is what we expect, Mm -hmm. but the kinds of things we're doing are not things that wouldn't, that would be really unusual. It's distinct from, another really important point about genome editing is it's distinct from GMOs, and we haven't made this distinction clear yet in our conversation today, that when we talk about GMOs, what we're referring to is taking a gene from one species and putting it in another, typically a bacterium. In the case of many of the products that are GMO products are on the market today, they're herbicide tolerance or insect control traits, and those come from bacteria and they're moved into plants. And there were a number of questions that people had around those, and a regulatory um, regime developed around answering those questions. Um, when it comes to genome editing, what we're typically talking about doing is making changes within the genome of a plant mm-hmm. that are consistent with the kinds of things you could see if you looked across genomes of that same species. Okay,
0: okay. Yeah. So you're not you're not introducing anything completely foreign For, to the right. We're to not the taking genome. foreign
2: genes and putting them into sure into the plant. So it's a little bit different. It's it's still you know we still go forward with, with great care to make sure we're getting the desired outcomes that we're looking for and and not doing things that are unexpected, but.
1: Mm -hmm. Sure. So just to follow up from what Corey was talking about, because there are the three dimensions that of ensuring success, which is the biology, the science, and then there's the social license piece. Do people accept it? Uh, Do people trust the organizations who are, Uh, developing and commercialising it, and the regulatory aspect. And when I talk to proponents of gene editing, for them, the two, two big pieces, you know, they're working on the biology. They're confident of that piece. The big unknowns is, you know, will people accept it and will there be a harmonised, coherent, international regulatory system? And there are definitely some bumps in the road around that. So as Corey was mentioning, um, the EU, I'm from New Zealand. It's a big debate at the moment. Um, New Zealand has been... New Zealand's little, so probably not many people pay attention. But New Zealand's little, we're, we're, but... we <laughs> um, so. But, you know, there are... But New Zealand's actually really interesting to sort of, you know, watch the kind of dialogue that's unfolding because New Zealand was, you know, very anti-GMO. It had big public discussions when GMOs um, were first being commercialized, and they had national panels and dialogues to determine what did the public want and ultimately decided that um, you know GMOs could not be commercialized in New Zealand could not be imported and so forth. But now, um, there's lots of discussion about you know should we allow gene editing in New Zealand? And some of the major enthusiasts for it are young scientists who are arguing that it's necessary to address the problem of climate change. So actually, climate change is, um, and I saw that in Europe too, some of the histo- you know historical opponents of G- you know GMOs, um, were some environmental groups, but I, but I, some of them are shifting their thinking with gene editing in the context of the climate crisis and thinking about all the different tools that we need uh, in order to be able to address, you know, this massive problem. And and so mm-hmm. for many of them, thinking about uh, gene editing as part of that. I just want to add one other thing about the risks because I do think this is important when we're thinking about public acceptance, which is, you know, Corey's part of a, you know, a big multinational company that has, you know, you know, all kinds of rigour in terms of, um, you know, how it applies its science or the testing that it does. I mean, would be very concerned about any risks because of the enormous consequences. Mm -hmm. Some people that I talk to, including proponents of gene editing, one of their concerns is that, on the one hand, democratisation of the technology can be really beneficial, getting the technology into many more people's hands. At the same time, there's some concern about that you know, it could end up in the hands of smaller companies that perhaps don't have the procedures in place and not doing all the testing that they should be. And there is some concern that if there was a mistake made, that that could end up coming back on everyone. And so, um, so again, thinking about this idea of democratisation, it can have its benefits, but there are some risks there as well and how we... How we address that, I'm not sure, has been teased out entirely. Sure.
0: So then, as a as a company that sublicenses this technology and you know is trying to to put it out there with other uh, companies, how how do you talk through those risks both internally and then um, with with other entities that are embarking on this?
2: Yeah, we have a lot of interactions through our trade associations and other contacts where, and and we're cognizant of that issue that that Carmen raised. Uh, and think it's important that, that, that collectively as an industry we, we you know, go forward and, and use this technology and this innovation in the right way. And so it is part of an active conversation. I can't provide a lot of detail at this moment about how you solve that problem, but we recognize that that's a concern that exists. People have it, and we, we would like to try to influence um, other people who are practicing the technology to, to adopt similar practices. And I think, um, you know, you, you mentioned earlier an example of um, the polled cattle um there was an example where there was a that was a, a small company and and they hadn't done enough of the rigorous things and so um it was discovered later that some of the editing machinery was still present in the cow and they didn't know it was there and so that, those kind of things are not going to be good for our industry so i think uh, you know through our industry and trade associations we have an interest in making sure that people are are doing the right kinds of tests and mm-hmm. and that's something that that'll be of the co- it's an active part of the conversation now as we continue to. Um,
0: did did you say the machinery was in part of the cow?
2: The the editing tools. The
0: editing tools. Okay. Mm. Hmm. Gotcha. <laughs> yeah. uh, so so when you know something like that pops up and catches the ear yeah. of people, how um, how does that affect the the research? side of, of gene editing and agriculture going forward when a commercial entity um, runs into these types of problems? Does, does it affect the research at all, or does it affect the ability to um, you know, move, move yeah. forward and, and commercialize some of these tools?
2: It makes it, it should, and it does make people make sure that they've done things in the right way. And, and what Carmen said about the way Corteva operates is accurate. We have rigorous protocols in place to make sure we've done... Everything that we intended to do, and nothing that we didn't intend to do, and it's all mm-hmm. thoroughly tested. And so, she just, the message just reinforces that that's the right way to do things, especially if you're going to commercialize um, products. And and you know, CRISPR is is um, easy to use, and it's efficient, and it's democratized. Um, one of the things that's true is that. I mean, you might, some people might have this idea of someone sort of in the garage, you know, making, making new plant varieties, but there's a lot that goes into making a competitive commercial plant variety, and it takes a lot more than just, you know, a gene editing toolkit. You need, you know, good genetics, good germplasm, a lot of other things. And so you, while people may do some things, things that get out into the marketplace and are, are part, broadly part of the um, things that the public is consuming will most likely have come through um, you know, rigorous sort of methods of and, and production methods that, that produce the kind of varieties that farmers are growing okay. you know, broadly.
0: Sure, sure. Oh, um, where are we in terms of um, the research that's still needed um, for commercial application? Uh, you said early on that this is still an emerging field. I, I guess at, at what stage, we already have gene-edited products out there um, how prevalent are they, and what 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 do we need? What kind of research is still needed going forward before it becomes kind of a household accepted um, name?
2: Yeah, there is there is, like I mentioned earlier, one one product that's commercially available, mm-hmm. and it's being it's marketed by a, a small startup company called Calixt, and it's in the Upper Midwest, and it's this high oleic um, soybean oil that's grown on contracted acres you know, locally in the upper Midwest. That oil is um, harvested and, and used in um, what they say local local applications, food service, and things of that nature. Uh, that's the first really commercial product that's out there. It's the only one that I'm aware of. There are uh, a number of companies, many companies, all, the, all of the major ag companies, many of the mid-sized companies, a lot of startups, as we talked about earlier, that are developing products in this space. Um, it typically takes, even though this is a really efficient technology, typically takes five to 10 years to develop a product. So it's not as if there's going to be a flood of things on the market a year from now, mm-hmm. but we'll increasingly start to see products on the market. And um, given the regulatory environment that exists worldwide and the sort of asynchrony of, of Europe and things like that, there are likely to be things that look like um, that are marketed in a similar way to this this high oleic oil there there be um, local cultivation and use type applications primarily in the beginning I would imagine and To answer your question directly about the technology the technology is ready today So when we understand, you know, when we have a gene in hand that we know we can make an edit and produce a trait We can do that today. So the technology is capable all of the testing that we need to have in place is capable and ready to go. So it's just a matter of some of these other things that Carmen mentioned. So mm-hmm. technology is ready, the science is ready, but it's really the regulatory environment, mm-hmm. the public acceptance, and it, and then it just takes time to develop products. So th- these will sort of gradually come along, and hopefully we'll resolve some of these other questions as well, and you'll gradually start to see more more applications on the market.
1: And I know at places like Iowa State University, there's a lot of scientific and research being conducted uh, in, in terms of this work. And again, I think the regulatory environment is a big piece of it. So um, USDA ruled in 2018, I, th- I think that they would regulate gene-edited products as a equivalent to traditionally bred products if the end product you know, could have been produced in the same way. So that was, you know, favourable. Um, to the industry, I think we're still waiting for the FDA to make a ruling. If I'm, if I remember correctly, I think folks are waiting to uh, hear if, if a ruling in March, and I think EPA is still having discussions around how to regulate it. So, from an industry point of view, regulatory certainty is really important. Especially for these smaller companies, if or in attracting investment mm-hmm. and moving ahead with that, so I my sense is that that's an important piece of it. Sure. Well, and the, the USDA
0: funded your your grant research partially. How important is that? In, is that research into public trust in um, some of these
1: regulatory decisions? I think that. A lot of folks, again, this is one of the key lessons out of the GMOs, now recognise that public trust is absolutely fundamental. And that's trust in, you know, industry, academia, but it's also trust in regulatory agencies. And this is where some of the tension arises because some folks, um, you know, Trust that the USDA and the FDA are providing adequate oversight of the food system, Um, but some folks don't think that they're doing a sufficient job in providing regulatory oversight. There is certainly some uh, people who think that regulatory agencies are influenced too much by industry, and so they don't trust the regulatory agencies. So... Um, So one of the things we'll be waiting to see is, and I don't think we can predict this now, but as products get, you know, as the regulatory structure falls into place, as products get commercialised, part of what we'll be waiting to see is how different groups respond to that. Will they... Will they be concerned about the regulatory oversight, or will they or will this not will, th- will this be a non-issue? And we really don't know. If you look at GMOs, I mean, GMOs were commercialized in about 9596, and mm-hmm. you think it, in the last few years, we had the massive national fight over labeling. So things can you know th- you know, a public debate, public fight over a technology can happen much later down the road. Sure. So, so let's, let's
0: kind of put the crystal ball out there. What do either of you think will happen in this field uh, within, say, the next 10 years? What are your, what are your predictions on research, um, product development, public acceptance, anything along those lines?
2: I've been in research my whole career for 20 years. I've worked on a lot of hard problems. I have to be an optimist, uh-huh. uh, so and I'm and I've I've obviously invested you know a lot of the last couple years of my time, trying to shepherd this technology internally within Corteva and get the investment in the right place and think about it the right way, create opportunities you know to to have these beneficial effects of innovation getting to getting to, uh, into the hands of of society. So, I think um, I'm, I'm optimistic that. Many, if not most, of these problems will be solved. I think when you look at the the EU, which is one we think a lot about, other countries are very important. We're we're also interested in what's going on in New Zealand, <laughs> um, but looking at the EU and and you know some of the comments you made about you know people recognize. I f- I think my, I have the sense that people feel differently about this than they do that they recognize that the GMOs that it, it was that wasn't handled the right way and um, and it, it's. That's kind of gone down a, a, a track. That's that is where it is today, and it's hard to hard to get it away from that. But when people look at this new this new opportunity, genome editing, um, I think there's a sense um, by many parties, including looking at the EU parties, and government parties, other places, where this is going to be so powerful, so important, so useful that we we got to kind of get this right. And I just want to highlight one example, and it really highlights kind of a nexus between producer and consumer-oriented applications, and it, Im- and it would have particular impact in the EU. The EU has goals to reduce pesticide use, but if, and maybe even to eliminate it. If you eliminate pesticides, and you don't have genome editing, and you sort of start taking all of your tools off the table, your agriculture is going to be severely hampered. And so mm-hmm. if, you're, if you have this goal to reduce pesticide use... Could you bring in genome editing as a place? We talked about, give some examples earlier about how you can have dis, um, genes that confer disease resistance and you can build disease resistance into your varieties. Genome editing would be a powerful tool for that, which would allow you to accomplish those goals so it solves problems for producers. Hey, I, my, I get, I get high-producing crops. I don't have to spray a pesticide. Society likes it because there's less pesticide use. It really is a neat opportunity. And so because of those things, I think mm. I'm optimistic that it won't be easy to get there, but we'll get through, we'll get over some of these hurdles. You, the problem never, the, the sort of the, the challenge never goes away. You can't, you can't, you always have to be thinking about it. you always have to be thinking about how are we, how are we benefiting society, what are we doing? So you can't you can't lose sight of that, but I am optimistic that we will get there and that we will be able to use this technology. It will be used, even if some applications are are foreclosed because of. Um, regulatory considerations or something. This, this technology is too important. It'll be used in academia. It'll be used somewhere. It'll produce really valuable things. And it's not just used for creating products. It's also used for learning, right? So if you want to know, we talked about the importance of understanding the biology. If you want to understand how these genes work, you can use genome editing as a way to learn as well. Not So it's a different, it's a different application than product development. It's learning, and it's going to be used for that for sure. So it, it it's it's going to be there, yep, and make sure. a big impact on society.
1: So I would follow Corey's optimistic vision and just argue that I think to help deliver that vision, we have to respect that we live in a pluralistic society, and what some people view as. You know, beneficial and just the best thing that sliced bread. That not everyone will view it as that, and that we have to respect the those people who decide not to choose that technology or choose to opt out. And I don't think we've had that discussion yet. And I think this is going to be an important discussion moving forward. Is how do we respect those groups of people who go, uh, "Thanks, but no thanks." Um, and And I think the other thing I would like to see as a sociologist concerned about you know we, we face these enormous challenges in our agriculture and food system, from climate change and you know f- you know food insecurity and major environmental challenges around drought and so forth, is that technology is important, but not to lose sight that it, it is just one aspect of addressing these big problems. And what I would love to see in my optimistic future is to see companies like Corteva and so forth go when they're arguing, you know, this is an important tool for addressing um, climate change or reducing pesticides and so forth. You know, also, you know, taking on that whole problem and and also arguing for all the other kinds of things we need to be doing as a society to help deliver. Uh, you know to help move us forward in addressing some of those challenges.
0: Sure, sure. I want to give you um, both the opportunity. Is there anything we haven't addressed today um, that you just want to add or clarify for our listeners who are who are tuning in on this?
1: Do you know one thing? I think it would be nice for Corey to address because is is the difference between gene editing and gene drives because I think this is an issue that can get conflated in people's minds and when I think about potentially what are some of the concerns that people will have, it's about gene drives. And when Corteva, the licensing agreement that Corteva has, it does actually have some rules in there in terms of how... um, researchers can use the technology, and I don't remember all of them, but you can't use it on tobacco. And the other thing you can't use it for is gene drives. And I thought that was really interesting that they put that in there because I do think this is where, you know, more of the societal debate might be around. So I hope I didn't put you on the spot, but do you want to talk about the difference between... I'd be happy (laughs) to talk about
2: gene drives. It's a... Right, so gene drives... And when we talk about when we talk about these technologies, or as we talked about in the beginning. There's a wide range of ways that you can use them, and our conversation has all been about these very um, circumscribed applications. Gene drives is one that's that is is outside of that circle. Um, it's one where what it allows you to do is to um, put a gene in an organism, and then that gene spreads throughout the population. So it essentially it, it has a mechanism in place that allows it to um, spread and and get in and move more quickly across the organism than it would just by by sort of common descent. So it's, a, it's a very it's a, describing how that works would be would be too complex to get into here. But um, the idea is there are applications uh, for that, particularly in control of pests like malaria-bearing mosquitoes or hantavirus-carrying mice or things like that where you could or even some um, applications, uh, more agricultural applications, where you have a path that infects a plant. Mm -hmm. If you could do something that uh, set up a gene drive that made um, animals sterile for example so that they could not have progeny they could still mate mm-hmm. but their progeny would not be fertile that's the kind of thing you could do with a gene drive
0: okay so so for you to, to clarify for me yeah. the gene drive is an inherited edited edited gene this isn't something that spreads through the, the organism this is something that spreads through the population it
2: spreads through the population okay. yes mm-hmm. but it but yeah it it spreads it spreads through the population in a way quicker than a gene would just by normal inheritance. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it can spread quickly. So if you if you put some modified um, insects or mosquitoes out into the environment, release them into the environment, this gene could spread through the population very quickly and make them all sterile. For example. So on the one hand, that's like, wait, well, that would be bene- that would be great. You could have, you know, you could get rid of mosquitoes or you could get rid of some pests. Those kinds of applications and the reasons why we don't pursue those and we don't have those as part of our license agreement is that is a um, a pretty big intervention into um, uh, the ecology, right, of of the environment that we live in. So Mm -hmm. just not confident in... You know, our ability to understand all of the implications of that at this point. Mm-hmm. So, so we'd be very circum- very reticent to, to do anything. And out. just being
1: really clear when we're talking to people about the difference between gene editing and gene drives, because a lot that is coming out in the media are some of these uh, gene drive initiatives, and, and they can be very concerning.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, there is a particular study that's gotten a lot of attention on that, isn't there? I believe there's one on an island um, concerned about... The, the mouse population there I think so it's so
2: this is one that was actually discussed at CRISPRCon in Boston and it's a group at MIT I don't remember all the particulars um, but one of the things they did was there's a there's a significant mouse population on this island mm-hmm. uh, that carries disease and so it is not a gene drive but oh, it is okay. a similar application where they've made sterile mice and put and they want to put them on the on the but there but that but it's not a gene that's able to spread throughout the population but it is it's cons- a little bit similar in concept that you would put a sterile population out there and that would reduce the population of mice. Mm-hmm. But it's still, it still is something that's getting into sort of the ecology, uh, natural ecology of a system. And, and so they chose to do that in a very, very structured way, which is an island and, and
0: mm-hmm. it but, was. But that's a different technology than a, gene drive. Okay. Yeah. Okay. As um, I recall. Okay. Yep. Is there is there anything else we haven't asked that you, you would like to add or, or clarify?
2: I think we've covered a lot of ground mm-hmm. um, and appreciate the chance to talk about this. Um, like I said, I think uh, genome editing is a fantastic tool, um, has a lot of potential, and if we use it in the right way and we address, you know, continue to think about and, and have the conversations like we're having today, like I said, I'm optimistic that it can be beneficial both for producers, consumers, and society. And, and to your point, um, Carmen, just, just to picking up on something you said a few minutes ago about people that want to opt out, and that's one of the reasons why, you know, we'll be transparent about what we do with the technology. And those who want to use it and use it can, and we hope that that's the case, and, and others who choose not to will have the choice as well.
0: All right. Well, thank you both for your time today. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today. And don't forget to pick up a copy of the Business Records 2020 Innovation Iowa magazine, unveiled on May 21st at Corteva Agriscience. Or check out this story and others at www.innovationia.com. Subscribe to our weekly Innovation Iowa e-newsletter and become a supporting member at www.businessrecord.com.